How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus on uh, what we're going to study so that we're prepared to... uh, Concentrate and move through this material somewhat rapidly. It should be familiar to most of you, but we have a lot of ground to cover. We'll see how I do tonight. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to come before you and to study your word, that your word does indeed inform us how to think, how to understand what goes on around us and how to handle the problems and adversities of life. Father, we know that you control history and that you are working out your plan, and as we continue to study your plan, we we see that it is moving towards an ultimate uh, conclusion and culmination of the angelic conflict and the rebelliousness of the human race, and that in that you have not left us uh, unaware and you have revealed how things are going to be brought to completion. So now as we begin to focus on the last days and the end times. Pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we might be uh, encouraged by them. Father, we just pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. We have been going through God's plan of the ages. We have looked at all of the dispensations and their distinctive, distinctive attributes and characteristics from uh, the beginning with the creation covenant as initiating the um, age of perfect environment during the time of the Gentiles all the way up to the present. And we have gone through for about the last four lessons the distinctives of the church age. The church age began in approximately 33 A.D. uh, on the day of Pentecost, and the church age concludes with what is called the rapture of the church. Now, there's a lot of uh, disagreement about the rapture, as we're going to see in our study, as to when it occurs and who's involved. And it is, uh, but just about everybody believes there is a rapture of some sort. So we need to look at that, and I have entitled this, Why I Believe in a Pre-Trib Rapture. This is uh, one of those subjects where a lot of people think, well, It doesn't really matter what you believe. There's a lot of disagreement. And as soon as you start hearing somebody talk about the fact that, well, it's a complicated issue, there's a lot of different opinions on it, what they're really trying to say is, I'm too lazy to work through all of the details, and rather than um, responsibly study the text and work it all out, I just want to um, be an agnostic. Well... The scriptures were given, were revealed by God not to confuse us, but to inform us. They're designed to illuminate and to reveal, not to cloud and obscure. And so whenever we say something like that, it is a backhanded insult to God. 
God has revealed many things. 28%, conservatively speaking, 28% of the Bible was prophecy when it was given. Now, that figure comes from J. Barton Payne's work on prophecy, and J. Barton Payne would not probably see as many things to be prophetic as we do. So that's a very conservative number. I think it may be revised upwards to as much as 30 or 32 percent. And of that, approximately one-third of the Bible that was prophetic when it was given, I would say that half of it has already been fulfilled. Many of the prophecies had to do with the events that occurred in the Old Testament, the prophecies about the fall of Tyre, the fall of Babylon, the uh, prophecies about the rise and fall of of Rome and Greece and... um, Persia, prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ. So approximately 20 to 24 percent of the Bible, which is at least one out of every five verses in the Bible, is, relates to unfulfilled prophecy. Furthermore, when you get into the New Testament, 18 percent of the epistles, we're just talking not excluding Revelation, excluding the Gospels, 18 percent of the epistles in the New Testament a prophecy. Since there is no prophetic fulfillment in the church age, that means that 18% or almost one out of every five verses in the epistles relates to unfulfilled prophecy. Now, some people get the idea, well, we don't want to study prophecy. That just sort of titillates people's imagination and appeals to sensationalism. But what you do when you avoid teaching prophecy or eschatology is you're basically saying, well, 20% of what God revealed is irrelevant and I'm not going to communicate it. The sad thing is, I've actually heard pastors say that as somewhat of a mark of pride that, that I'm not going to teach prophecy because all, then all these people come out and all they want is to have all the sensational details and find out what's going on today and how it relates to prophecy. And that tells me a couple of things. First of all, that they're not teaching it right or they don't understand it right. Uh, first of all, because any prof- anything that would be in the process of being fulfilled today uh, would be... Um, uh, a misinterpretation because there's no prophecy fulfilled in the church age. Now, we may see things setting up, and certainly there's a lot of exciting things going on today, especially in light of the election that took place yesterday, making um, our, uh, Sharon the uh, prime minister of, of uh, Israel. And I read uh, an article on the Internet today relating that uh, Saddam Hussein has uh, called for a jihad against Israel. So it'll be interesting to see how all of this works out. And uh, uh, all these things are important. Besides that, R.C. Sproul, I don't know if any of you know who Sproul is. He's reformed. He doesn't be- he's now become a preterist, which means that he thinks most of the prophecy in the New Testament was really directed to 70 A.D., so it's already been fulfilled. But even a man like R.C. Sproul makes the comment that 60% of the verses in the New Testament cannot be properly interpreted apart from an understanding of eschatology. Sixty percent, that's, that's less than one out of every two verses. Half the verses in Scripture, at least, cannot be properly understood if you don't have your understanding of prophecy uh, together. So that's one reason why we have gone through our study on God's plan for the ages, dispensations, and prophecy. If you add to the mix... Uh, that interpretation is affected by both an understanding of dispensations and prophecy, I think it's almost 80% of the New Testament is going to be affected. So if someone doesn't properly understand dispensations, 
and someone doesn't properly understand eschatology, you can count on it. They're going to misinterpret uh, probably 80 to 90% of the New Testament. They won't even understand the spiritual life because it's unique, it's distinct, it's based on the filling of the Holy Spirit in this age, as we studied last time, which is different from any other age in human history. So prophecy is clearly important and something that we, that we should study. So we'll start off with asking two questions that will be answered this evening. First, what is the rapture? And second, when is the rapture? What is it and when is it? First of all, what is the rapture? Let's have a definition. The rapture is the resurrection of all dead church-age believers. That means every believer who has died from the resurrection of Christ to the present and to the time of the rapture, resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the removal or the instantaneous removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age, and this is immediately prior to the beginning of the tribulation. So this is the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age, immediately before the tribulation begins. Now, in my definition, I've answered the question of when as well, but I think that's important. Now, what are the key terms? In discussion of anything, you have technical vocabulary, so you have to understand what your key words are. And sometimes you will hear people say, well, I don't believe in the rapture. That's not even found in the Bible. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. Well, the answer to that is, first of all, you can't find terms like hypostatic union and trinity in the Bible either. You can't find them even in the Greek. Those are theological terms that were coined by theologians in the early church age to express concepts that are clearly revealed in the Scripture. But the term rapture is a biblical term because it comes from not the Greek text of the New Testament, but it comes from the Latin text of 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, this is 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Future passive of harpazo. Harpazo is translated in the Vulgate as, with the verb rapturo, which means to be caught up or to seize with force or to snatch. Harpazo, caught up, seize upon with force, or to snatch up. I think Hal Lindsey therefore called it the great snatch. So this is the rapture. It is a therefore the term rapture is a biblical term. Now the term, word rapture has various connotations. Some people can see something and just swoon over it and become enraptured, and that's an emotional term. That's not what we're talking about. Raptuo means to be caught up, and in some sense it was applied in Latin to be caught up in an emotional state. But that's determined by context. This is not an emotional concept here. It's talking about, and it's used in many places where something is seized with force, something is snatched up or caught up or, or, or rescued even. So that's 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Now another word that's used is found in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Notice the 
uh, second person plural pronoun there, our. Our gathering. Paul views himself and the writers are gathering together to him at the time of the coming. And this word here for our gathering together is the word episunagoge. From the, it's a compound from the preposition uh, epi plus the noun synagogue, synagogue, which relates to an assembly or gathering together of people. So there will be an assembly of people at the um, time of the rapture. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 uses yet another term. There Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is a... Uh, euphemism in the scriptures for the believer's intermediate state between physical death and the rapture. Believers are often spoken of as sleeping. That doesn't mean the doctrine of soul sleep. It means that during that time, uh, it is as if we are asleep. Now, we're absent from the body. We're conscious. We have an interim body with the Lord, and uh, but we are not dead like the unbeliever. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, this verse 52 explains the mechanics of the rapture. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. And the word for change there is alasso. Alasso, meaning to change, to transform, to exchange. We will be exchanging an imper- uh, a perishable or a mortal body for one that is imperishable and immortal. For that which is mortal and perishable cannot see the kingdom of God. So there has to be a transformation of our mortal body, the body we have now. And fortunately, it's going to be a perfect body, and therefore it will not be... Uh, uh, we won't have to worry about getting fat or dieting. We won't have to worry about getting old. We won't have to worry about our hair falling out or turning gray. We will all have a perfect body. The next passage is John 14, verse 3. John 14, 3, at the upper room discourse, Jesus said, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you, to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And there he uses the word paralambano. Paralambano, meaning to take to oneself or to receive to oneself. John 14.30 To take to oneself or to receive to oneself. So he will come again and take us to himself. That means that he's the one who performs the action on us. And then it says that where I am, there. The where I am is in heaven. It's not on the earth. That's why this is an important rapture passage. A first clear statement of the rapture in the Gospels. Jesus is saying that I will take you to heaven. Not to the earth. Not the second coming, but to heaven. Where I am, there you may be also. Philippians 3.11 uses yet another word. There Paul says, In order that I might attain to the resurrection, literally the out-resurrection or exit-resurrection from the dead. Now this is a fascinating phrase because 
the verb ex anastasis here, or the noun ex anastasis, translated resurrection, is a compound of the preposition ek, meaning out of or from, plus the normal word for resurrection, anastasis. But it's only used one time in the Greek New Testament, and it's only used two other times in all of classical Greek, Koine Greek literature. So it's a difficult word to, to, uh, to parse and to understand, but it is clearly a distinct concept from simple resurrection. Not only that, but there is the, the phrase from the dead repeats the preposition ek. Ek plus the noun nekros, meaning out from the dead. So he's talking about some, a special sort of resurrection from the uh, group of known as the dead ones. So this refers to the rapture of believers, the exit resurrection of the church at the end of the church age. Then we have, and also has the connotation of expulsion, which is interesting that God, it shows the force of what's happening here, is that God, it's not just an escape, it's not just that we're being taken out, but that God is forcibly doing something to remove all believers from the planet because of what is about to occur. Another passage, important passage for the rapture is Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope. That's the coming of our Lord at the rapture. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There the Greek word is epiphania. And epiphania means a manifestation or appearance. Now this is not always a technical word for the rapture, but it is in this passage. A couple of these terms are used of the second coming as well. Epiphania and apocalypsis are both used of the second coming, but the context in Titus 2.13 shows that it is also used of the rapture. Then we have 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And there we have the word ruomai, R-H-U-O-M-A-I, ruomai. And ruomai is a fascinating word, has a, another sense of strength to it and power in terms of the removal. It means to draw something to oneself. It means to rescue by a forcible act. This is a forcible act because God is going against all of the normal uh, modus operandi of physical laws in the universe to remove all believers from the earth. We are rescued by a forcible act. We are delivered from something. Delivered from something. First Thessalonians 1.10, and it's designated as a, we are rescued by a forcible act from the wrath to come. First Peter 1.13, Therefore gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation, apocalypsis, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here we have the same word that is used for, you sometimes have heard the phrase apocalyptic literature, which I don't think really applies to Scripture, but apocalyptic literature is usually literature that's filled with all kinds of esoteric symbols and judgments and future orientation to the final days and catastrophes on the earth. So, but apocalypsis basically means revelation. 
an illumination. It means to uncover something that has been covered or hidden, to lay bare the truth. It means to reveal or it refers to a revelation. An uncovering, laying bare, revealing, and a revelation. Then we come to James 5, 7, passage we've studied not too long ago, where we have another word that is used of both the second coming and the rapture, parousia. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming, that is, the parousia of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Now, I think the King James says the early and the latter rains, and that from that phrase, which is a uh, really a meteorological statement about what happens in Israel. They have spring rains and fall rains, and it's just a statement, that the, uh, an analogy based on agriculture, that the farmer plants in the spring, the seeds are germinated, with the spring rains and then goes through the summer and then the fall rains bring in the harvest. But there are some today, usually in the charismatic camp, who have captured this phrase, latter rain, from uses in Joel and uses here as the idea that there is some sort of of, uh, uh, great revival before Jesus comes back. And that's not at all what the text is saying. The text is emphasizing being patient, that just as the farmer is patient uh, and waiting for the rains to come before everything, his crops are brought to fruition, so we are to wait patiently until the Lord returns. And that's the point of verse 8. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The parousia of the Lord is at hand. There's an immediacy to it, and that's emphasized by the Greek word that's used there, uh, ingus. So these are the key words that are used and uh, emphasized in the Scriptures, all of which relate at one point or another to the rapture. Now, those are just the words, and they all appear in key verses. So what we're going to do is go back and look at some of those key verses. There are six key verses in the, uh, in the New Testament, six key verses that support the doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture. The first of these is found in, first, uh, is found in John 14, 1 through 3. John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus has just announced to his disciples that he is getting ready to go to heaven. He will be leaving. And, of course, he had said that just a few days earlier. This is in the upper room discourse the night before he goes to the cross. And it was just two or three days earlier as he was entering Jerusalem that he gave the uh, discourse called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew chapter 24, he clearly told them he was leaving, but they couldn't quite grasp that. And three days later, he says he's going to heaven, and they panicked. And he says... Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be upset because I'm leaving. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Where is he going? He's going to heaven, to the abode of God, to prepare for us dwelling places. He says, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am... There you may be also. So I want to make three observations about this passage. First of all, Jesus ascended where I go. 
If I go, how did he go? He ascended literally, bodily, and visibly to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples were all standing there and they watched him go up. In fact, after Jesus had departed, an angel appeared to them and said to them as they stood there with their mouths hanging open and their tongues flapping in the wind, said, and they, and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky, gazing up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. How did he go? He went literally, physically, and bodily. That means that that excludes the possibility of Jesus' return being spiritual, being immaterial. And you see, when you talk to the amillennialist, or you talk to the uh, person who's trying to say that uh, all of the Matthew 24 and Revelation 4 through 19 or 18 all occurred, That was just a symbolic literature talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The question to ask is, well, when did Jesus come back? Jesus is supposed to come back then if uh, those are the signs of the times. And all that talks about, uh, all of that in, uh, talks about Matthew 24 and Revelation. It's talking about the second coming. Then how did Jesus come back? I I haven't seen him. Oh, well, he came back spiritually. Well, that's not how he went up. He didn't go up spiritually. He went up physically and bodily, and he'll come back the same way so that he will be seen by the church. Now, that's our, our second, the second observation here, and that is that the promise in John 14 is not made to the world at large. That is not made to believers and unbelievers. It's not made to the human race. So it's not that the entire human race is going to see him when he comes back. They didn't see him when he ascended. It was believers that saw it. So the emphasis here is that this refers to his return for the church, his return for believers. He's talking to believers. The disciples represent all church-age believers. They're the foundation of the church. So this refers to his return to the, for the church, not his return to the earth. And then third, when Jesus returns... When Jesus returns, they are taken to his Father's house, where he is building our heavenly residences. They are not taken to earth, that where I am, that is in heaven, there you may be also. So this is clearly a new idea to the disciples. They thought he would restore the kingdom. They were looking forward to being on the earth in the kingdom. That's what they asked him right before he left in Acts 1. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? They're not looking to a heavenly destiny. They're looking for an earthly destiny. And Jesus is telling them, look, guys, you're going to go to heaven with me. You don't have an earthly destiny. You're not Israel anymore. You're the church. The church has a heavenly destiny. Israel has an earthly destiny. And so we're headed for heaven, not uh, not an earthly future. The next key verse in understanding the rapture is in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where we're told to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So what we are to look to next in God's prophetic plan is not the Antichrist. It's not tribulation. It's not, don't look, it doesn't say look for wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes. And then you'll know my coming is near. No, we are to anticipate the blessed appearance of our Lord, the blessed hope and appearance of our Lord, not these other events. If anything else happens between now and the rapture, then the thing to look for is not His coming, but whatever comes between now and His coming. Now, that's a point that just misses a lot of people. If, if what we are to look for is His coming, then nothing must, inter, must intercede or nothing must come in between the present circumstances and His coming. If anything else is going to come, anything else in the prophetic timetable intervenes, then that's what we would be expecting next. See, if, you're, if you believe in, and we'll define the terms in a minute if they're unfamiliar to you, if you believe in a mid-trib rapture, or a post-trib rapture, that means a rapture that occurs in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation, then instead of looking for the um, blessed hope of the appearance of our Lord, you need to be looking for the appearance of the Antichrist. It's, and you need to be looking for uh, the seal judgments. And you need to be looking for all of these other events that will come in between. You need to be looking for the rebuilding of the tribulation temple so that the uh, Antichrist can defile it rather than looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Titus 2.13 emphasizes the fact that what we are to look for is his return. And that, therefore, must be the rapture is the next thing to happen in God's prophetic timetable. The third verse, key verse, Philippians 3.11, where Paul states, in order that I may attain to the out resurrection or exit resurrection from the dead. And there, I've already emphasized that word. Paul is just using that as a technical term showing the mechanics that we are removed from the dead. That church age believers are removed from the dead. What happens um, in amillennialism is that Jesus returns. There's no literal millennium. What Jesus returns... And at that point, everybody's resurrected for judgment. But see, the use of ex anastasis plus the preposition ek indicates that the unbelieving dead stay in the grave where they are. So this is emphasizing that there is a distinction, that there is a removal of believers from the dead, and it is in context, therefore talking, because of the other passages, it must be talking about the rapture. Philippians 3.20 is our fourth key verse. There Paul states, For our citizenship, our polytuma, which is our, all that we have, our citizenship is not here, it's not on the earth, this is not our, our home, this is not our destiny. Our citizenship as believers is heaven. The church is a heavenly people. Israel is an earthly people. The church has a heavenly destiny as the bride of Christ and as the body of Christ. The Israel has a earthly destiny. They've been promised a literal land. They've been promised a future temple. They've been promised a future priesthood. All of that is earthbound, where we have a citizenship that is in heaven. So we eagerly await our Lord to come back to take us to heaven. 
1 Corinthians 15:51 through 53 is our fifth key passage. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery means that this was unrevealed in the Old Testament. This is something new. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Hmm. The Old Testament, they knew about resurrection. So, if this is a mystery, he can't be talking about simple resurrection from the dead. Because they knew about that already. Mystery doctrine is previously unrevealed truth. So that means it can't be talking about a simple resurrection at the end of the age. It must be talking about something distinct, something unique. We being believers, so it applies only to believers. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So this emphasizes the fact that what happens at the last trumpet is distinct. It's not revealed in the Old Testament. Therefore, it doesn't apply to Israel. It only applies to the church. All mystery doctrine applies only to the church. The sixth key passage is 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18, and this is the key passage on the rapture. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. See, he's answering a question. What's happened is that when, when Paul went to, went to Thessalonica, he taught them for about six or eight months while he was there, and one of the things he taught them was the rapture. Obviously, he taught them about future things because they're concerned about, well, what happened? You told us that Jesus was coming back, and now our, our, our brothers, our fathers, our, our mothers, our sisters have died. What happened to them? They're confused. It's obvious from the passage they've been taught, but they didn't understand it. So here you see the Apostle Paul. He's only got eight months to teach, and something that he taught was prophecy. He taught about the rapture. He taught about future things. He taught about the destiny of the believer. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So there he's talking about believers. Those who are asleep that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. He's not talking about not grieving at all. He's saying not grieving like those who have no hope. We're going to grieve as believers. I think grief is, uh, is the byproduct of being fallen creatures. And it is a wake-up call to everybody that we are fallen creatures destined for, for death and that death is not normal. See, God did not create man to die. So every time there's a death, it's a reminder that we are living in a fallen world as a result of the penalty of sin. And that's why it hurts. That's why it, 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 it hurts us so much when a loved one dies, because we were not ever intended to go through that. And it is a, it's a warning. It is a red light going off to make us focus on spiritual realities. That's why we grieve. But as believers, we understand the dynamics we understand that if it's a believer, they're absent from the body. They're face to face with the Lord. They're in a place where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. All things have passed away and all things are new. So Paul goes on in verse 14 to explain this. He says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Notice how the gospel message includes resurrection. He includes it here. He includes it in 1 Corinthians 15. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... 
God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. You see, when we, if we were to die today, we would be absent from the body, face to face with the Lord in an interim body. Now, how do we know we have an interim body? We go to the episode in Luke chapter 17, where we have the story about Abraham the beggar, not Abraham of the Old Testament, but, um, I mean, excuse me, Lazarus the beggar, not the Lazarus who was raised from the dead, but Lazarus the beggar who's always begging outside the gates of a rich man. The rich man's not a believer and he died and he goes to torments. The Lazarus dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom. And then when, when uh, the story proceeds, as Jesus tells it, the uh, rich man looks over and sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom and he says, Oh, it's so hot and dry here. He says, uh, Lazarus, put your finger in the water and put it on my tongue. Now that implies that Lazarus has a finger, and the rich man has a tongue in their interim body. So we extrapolate from that that the rest of the body must be there as well. So they have some sort of interim immaterial body that can, uh, at least for the unbeliever, feels and experiences pain and all of the misery of torments. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. So here we're we're introduced to the sounds that accompany the rapture. One of the unfortunate terms that entered into all the rapture discussion was, was the term secret rapture. Now, the reason they used that term secret rapture was because it, it was unrevealed previously in the Scriptures. That's what they were referring to. Not that the rapture is going to occur and nobody's going to notice it. It's just going to be our little secret. No, that's not how they were using it, but that's how people use it to uh, ridicule us. Uh, so it's an unfortunate use of the term. It's not a secret. Just as... Uh, uh, People who were standing around when Jesus came to John the Baptist heard the Father announce, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And they saw the, the dove, the Holy Spirit, descend upon Jesus uh, when he was baptized. Just as when um, uh, the angel appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, uh, when, when the Lord appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul heard the precise content of what the Lord was saying to him. Those around him just saw a blinding light, but they heard a noise. They didn't hear precisely what was said, but they heard the noise. There was empirical evidence accompanying it. It wasn't just some sort of internal, mystical, uh, subjective uh, experience that, that Saul had. There was something that was clear and objective there. So there are sounds that accompany the rapture. The first is there is a shout. From the Lord, and the Greek word here is the word kelusma, which means the voicing of a command, the shout of a command. Literally, the Lord Himself descends with the command. We are called to fall in, put it in military parlance, and instantly the church, in the twinkling of an eye, we will all disappear physically and bodily, just as Jesus physical body disappeared from the grave and the grave clothes were left there, 
we will leave physically and bodily. Now, one question has come up lately. Well, does that affect children who aren't saved yet? No, it doesn't affect children who aren't saved. And uh, that's one of the problems with that book, Left Behind. There are many good things associated with that as in the novel. But one of the problems is they have children, all the children in the world getting raptured. Well, why is that wrong? Because those children, all the children who are alive at the beginning of the tribulation, and we don't know how much time may elapse between the, resur- the, the resurrection of the church and the beginning of the tribulation. It may be a few weeks, it may be a few months, it may be uh, a year or two, but all of those children who are, who are alive, even the babies who are just born, will all be seven by the time the Lord comes back at the end of the tribulation. And with all the things that are going on in the tribulation, they certainly will have reached or could have potentially reached God consciousness during that time to make their own decision whether or not they will trust Christ or not. So you will not be seeing every child uh, under the age of accountability being raptured at the rapture. Just those who have trusted Christ as a Savior and church-age believers now. First thing we have is this command. Same thing is mentioned in Revelation 4.1. There Paul states, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, after these things refers to the seven letters to the seven churches covered in the first three chapters of Revelation. So now, when you see this phrase, after these things, this shows that a marked distinction. He's, he's moving to the next subject. He's changing his pace. There's a, a gap in between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. After these things, I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what may, must take place after these things. So there is a voice command, a shout to, to John there to come up. So this is analogous to the rapture at the beginning of that section of Revelation. Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. That's the shout of the Lord the rapture. And shall come forth those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now here, he is simply summarizing all of the events in the various resurrections. But the shout is, uh, is the same in all of these passages. second noise that is heard is the voice of Michael the archangel. The voice of Michael the archangel. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So there is the announcement of a trumpet blast. Now this is not to be confused with the various trumpet blasts, the trumpet judgments in Revelation. A trumpet was used in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, to call God's people to assembly. So, just like in the military in days gone by, every time they needed to do anything, it was announced by a bugle blast. That is the same thing. So, there will be a trumpet blast. So, it's not a silent thing. Non-believers, unbelievers, those who are not involved in the rapture are going to hear things. They're going to see things. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens when uh, uh, airline pilots are raptured out of the cockpit of their airplanes when uh, 
people who are driving along the freeway at a 70 or 80 miles an hour. That won't be in Connecticut. That'll be out west. Um, and they're raptured and their car just takes off down the uh, highway. But those kinds of things will happen. I mean, that's we laugh about it. It's a little sensationalistic. But I understand that back in the... Um, Back in the 50s, Braniff Airlines, who was the founder and CEO of Braniff, was a, was a believer and believed in the rapture. He wouldn't, if he knew about it, he would not allow two Christians to be in the cockpit of any Braniff airplane because of that. And uh, see, understanding, understanding prophecy actually affects how people live. And, uh, but that, that's true. People have made those kinds of decisions in the past but with an understanding of scriptures. There's going to be a lot of calamity that takes place on the earth. It's just going to wreak havoc. Can you think about it? If the rapture were to occur today, uh, some estimates say half, some say a third of the people serving in the federal government, Congress and Senate, representatives, White House, are believers. They're all gone. Just think of the turmoil. Some have said that as a result of the opening up of the Soviet Union, that at least 20% of those who are in the Soviet bureaucracy are believers now. And they're gone. Think about all the vast numbers of uh, doctors and, and lawyers, and you just think about all the legal ramifications and all of the, the you know, if nothing else uh, brought on the great tribulation, it would be all of the court cases that would ensue, fighting over all of the wills and last uh, wills and testaments of the believers who disappeared. Some people have even gone so far as to write rapture wills. Y'all ever heard of a rapture will? A rapture will is when uh, you... you who's not a believer, so you give them a will that gives them the gospel and describes what has happened if you ever disappear, what to do with your assets, what to do with your dogs and your cats and your fish, everything else, so they don't all just starve because you've gone to heaven. So, uh, and any children who aren't, are left unsaved. So that's called a rapture will, and uh, we kind of laugh at that, but I know people who have done that. I'm not recommending it, by the way. I'm just relating what some people have done. Then another facet in um, factor in 1 Thessalonians is the clouds. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, not on the earth. Second coming, He comes back to the earth. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ who comes back. We're caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, not an angel, not an emissary, but the Lord Himself. And we are told that um, those who are raptured are the dead in Christ. This does not include Old Testament saints. It does not include every believer of all time, only church-age believers, only those who are in Christ. And we have seen that the mechanics are described over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now that brings us to the second question, which is when does the rapture occur? When does the rapture occur? And there are four views as to when the rapture occurs. The first is that the rapture occurs before the tribulation. Before the tribulation and includes all believers. This is called a pre-tribulation rapture. Pre meaning before. Pre-trib rapture. This should be basic review for most of you. Second view is the 
partial rapture view, which has the idea that spiritual believers are raptured, and if you're a carnal Christian, well, you have to make it through the tribulation. That's, those are partial raptures. Some of them have multiple raptures, so every few years the spiritual ones get raptured out. That's rather silly, frankly. Uh, then there's the mid-trib rapture, where the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation. And so all believers have to endure the judgments in the first half. Now, what happens here is people want to play games with a, a technical term called the wrath of God. All the tribulation is the outpouring of the wrath of God. The term wrath of the Lamb is used in Revelation chapter 6 with the pouring out of the first seal. So that occurs right at the beginning of the tribulation. So you have the outpouring of the wrath of God. The tribulation talks about the wrath of man, the wrath of Satan, but the tribulation is the outpouring of the wrath of God from beginning to end on mankind. So... Since the church is never the object of the wrath of God, they don't go through it. That's one of the basic problems with the mid-trib view. And also one that came out about ten years ago called the pre-wrath rapture view. And it's not quite mid-trib. It's the rapture occurs in about the last year of the tribulation or last year and a half. And they use the term rapture or wrath of God to apply to only the, the battle of Armageddon, basically. But they all fall apart, all those other views fall apart because they don't consistently separate God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church and they don't pay attention to words like the wrath of God. The fourth view is the post-trib rapture view and that is the view that the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation forcing all believers to endure the entire seven years years of the tribulation. Now, we believe that the rapture will occur at the beginning of the tribulation, called the pre-trib rapture view, and there are seven reasons for the pre-trib rapture view. Seven reasons. First, is that there is a distinction in the Word of God between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. This is foundational. God has made a distinction between his plan for the Israel and his plan for the church. And because of that, the church does not have a place in the tribulation whose purpose is directed toward Israel. One verse on this is Romans 11.25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, that is, unrevealed truth, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's at the end of the church age. Because in the church age, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. The focus is not on Israel. So the partial hardening happens to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. So the implication is after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then there will be a shift back to God's plan for Israel. And this fulfills his covenant promises, verse 27. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, when we look at the chart, we see that there's a distinction in God's plan. Here, can you see that arrow? Anybody see the arrow? 
Here's where the church age begins. Christ ascends. The day of Pentecost, you have tongues of fire and the, and the, uh, the judgment poured out on Israel. They go out in 70 A.D. under dispersion. So they're dispersed throughout the nations during this whole period. And this is God's plan for the church age. Then when the rapture occurs, the nation has partially been regathered. There has to be a nation in the land at the beginning of the tribulation. Notice I didn't say it has to be there for the rapture. It has to be there at the beginning of the tribulation. Why? Daniel chapter 9 says that what begins that last seven-year period, known as Daniel's 70th week, what begins Daniel's 70th week is that the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That begins it. In order for the Antichrist to be able to sign a peace treaty with Israel, there has to be a national entity known as Israel. Not regenerate Israel. They're unregenerate, but they ha- there has to be a regathering of Israel uh, in, the, in the land, and then there is a restoration of that for Daniel's 70th week, which has to do with Israel. Which brings us to the second point, and that is that the purposes for the tribulation do not relate to the church. And there are four purposes to the tribulation. The first is to execute judgment on the wicked and rebellious nations who have rejected Christ and been hostile to Israel. The first purpose is to execute judgment on the wicked nations who have rejected Christ and Israel. So God is judging the nations. It's an outpouring of the wrath of God on the nations. Fulfills all the judgment passages. Go back into passages, for example, in Isaiah chapter 13, which precedes Isaiah 14, where you have the fall of Satan uh, listed. Isaiah chapter 13 is about God's judgment on Babylon. And I went through that the other day, and none of that's been fulfilled. It's all future. So many of the judgments in Isaiah and Jeremiah that have to do with, with the Gentile nations have yet to be fulfilled. And so God pours out his judgment on these nations because of their anti-Semitism and because of their rejection of Christ. Second, it's to demonstrate the inability of Satan to rule the planet. One of the greatest testimonies to to Satan's inability to be God is that he can't control things. Everything falls apart. He he doesn't just have one sin nature to control. He has about six billion, and and they all want to be God. So it demonstrates the inability of Satan to rule the planet. It also provides a time under extremely harsh conditions for millions to be saved. And I think millions are saved. Billions die. If the, if the tribulation began now, with a population of almost 6 billion on the planet, and within the next seven years, 3 billion will die. It's going to be a horrible time. For those who don't believe in a pre-trib rapture, they say that when the, the passages say that God's going to rescue us from the wrath to come, that that means that these judgments will just fall on, on unbe- unbelievers, not on believers. Well, listen. If you just lived in that town in India that had the earthquake that measured eight-something on the Richter scales last week, earthquakes don't distinguish between believers and unbelievers. Hurricanes that go through an area don't distinguish between believers and unbelievers. Pestilence, disease, does not distinguish between believer and unbeliever. So these judgments are on everyone, and the only way that the church can be protected is to remove them. Fourth, it provides, prepares the nation Israel for the Messiah and his kingdom. That's its focus. 
is to prepare the nation Israel for the Messiah and his kingdom. And this is seen in the tribulation. I'm just going to move in Daniel 70 weeks. The tribulation is for Israel. The 70 weeks focus on the time for Israel up to the cutting off of Messiah the Prince, which occurred on March 30th, A.D. 33, with Jesus' triumphal entry into into, uh, Jerusalem. And then it begins, the last week is the last week for Daniel's people and for Daniel's city. So this does not apply to the church, but to Israel. The third reason is that the church is never ever, the bride is, and the body of Christ is never ever the object of the wrath of God. The wrath of God defines the judgment of God on unbelievers. It is a technical term for God's judgment on unbelievers throughout the scripture. It is not always technical to the tribulation, but it is always the execution of God's judgment on rebellious unbelievers. The first time wrath is used in Revelation is in Revelation 6 in connection with the first seal judgment, which occurs at the beginning of the tribulation. So that means that there is an outpouring of the wrath of God throughout the entire seven-year period. The wrath of God in Revelation in the tribulation is worldwide in scope, and it results in the death of billions. I want you to see a few key passages. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not destined us, believers, for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That indicates we are delivered. This is phase three salvation. We are delivered through the rapture and away from wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us, from the wrath to come. That means we don't go into it. Who delivers us from? Ek. Interesting. Ek, if you look at the way the preposition operates in Greek, here's a circle. Ek, E-K, is out of, out from, just like in birth, out from the womb. It emphasizes what goes on out here. It never says anything about what's inside the circle. Inside the circle is wrath. Inside the circle is the tribulation. But it has been demonstrated time and again through syntactical studies that Eck does not ever talk about what's operating inside the circle. It's talking about separation from the circle, not ever being in the circle. So to be rescued from the wrath of God means that we never go through it. John 5.28, or excuse me, Revelation 3, 9, and 10. Now, this is interesting if you've got a King James Version. I don't have time to give you the details on this, but this is badly punctuated. Notice how verse 10 begins with a capital B. King James translators had a tendency to want to start every verse as a complete sentence. So that means that when they started this one with a because, it makes it look as English as if the causal phrase is the subordinate clause to the main clause, main clause, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. But that almost implies, uh, and that's where some people come up with a partial rapture view. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, in other words, if you didn't, maybe I wouldn't keep you. But because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. 
But John Niemöller, who is professor of Greek at a Chaper Seminary, has done a masterful job of studying every single uh, causal clause in, in the Greek New Testament to demonstrate that a causal clause in 98% of the cases, when it's in this kind of a construction, relates to what precedes and not what comes after. In other words, the clause that, that because modifies is verse 9, not the second half of verse 10. Therefore, remember there weren't any verses in the original Greek, it should be read, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you, comma, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, period. In other words, I will cause them to know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I, period. I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That's how it should be punctuated. And keeping them from the hour of testing is keeping them from the tribulation. Matthew twenty four twenty one. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. This emphasizes the next point, which is that the judgments of the tribulation are unique in all of human history. Not only are we kept out of it, but this isn't just calamity. This isn't just earthquakes and, and hurricanes like we've experienced, like we continue to experience throughout the church age, but that this is unique, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world. Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, Alas, for the day is great. There is none like it. It's the time of Jacob's distress, the time of Jacob's trouble but he will be saved from it. There's none like it. There is never before in all of human history has anybody seen or witnessed the kind of calamities to the degree that they're going to be experienced during the tribulation. Daniel 12.1, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. It is a unique time of incredible Incredible, unimaginable horror. And Joel 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there's a great and mighty people. There's never been anything like it. Well, the fourth reason is that the rapture is, the coming of the Lord is said to be imminent. That means that it can happen at any moment. Well, we have covered three of the six reasons for the rapture, three of the seven, so we will save the other four until next time, and we'll wrap up, wrap up the rapture next time and then get into the tribulation period itself, which is Daniel's 70th week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to understand your tremendous grace provision in removing us from the planet during this time of intense judgment. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that they would be a source of comfort for us as they were for the Thessalonian believers, and that we might, uh, might be encouraged to that our understanding of your word is true. Father, we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.